Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. It just so happens that I happen to be Kirk O'Bear. Oh my gosh. Well, I happen to be John Brunzo. Well, that's a good, you, a good combination since the show is called Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Well, you know, I, uh, I, hope, it, I hope it all works out. I really yeah. do. Well, we're hopeful. We got our fingers crossed. But hey, I know we're going to talk about the Daryl or Darrell Brooks trial, which lasted for, what was it? Almost three, two and a half weeks, right? Yep. And um, surprisingly, it should have been three hour uh, deliberation, which not surprisingly resulted in some. Did he get found guilty of everything? I don't even know. Everything. Uh, yeah, everything. Okay. All right. We'll get to that. But I have something else. But I want to talk about first, and this is timely because, as you know, John, and our listeners should know, uh, there's an election coming up. Did you know that? Uh, um, I hadn't heard, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested. Okay. Well. Actually, I already voted, but. Anyways. Well, good. Tim Michaels is running for governor, and um, he is, you know, on the conservative side of things, business owner, multi, multi million billionaire, whatever he is. Um, it's funny because when I drive through Milwaukee, there's that huge building that says Michael's yep. on the side. That's, and I, that's when brand I, new. that's brand new. Yeah. Right. When I initially saw that, I'm like, Hey, isn't that funny? That business is called, it has the same name as that guy who's running for, it turns out it's him. Well, it's the largest <laughs> construction company in the state. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Okay. So, um, uh, there was a press release that came out. Let me see here. When was this? Oh, I don't know. A day or two ago. And uh, predictably with the election coming up, uh, Republican candidate for governor, Tim Michaels, uh, this is on Monday, Monday this week. Um, he's going to appoint a chair of the Wisconsin parole commission, um, whose goal will not be reducing the prison population. So, you know, it's kind of a talking I, point, the old I saw um, that. Yeah. tough on crime thing uh, put out there. Like, and here's the thing, you know, uh, I know we're defense lawyers and I know that we tend to view things a certain way. We're obviously biased in favor of our clients, but on the other hand, I think that we have a very, uh, I don't know, an intimate understanding of, of the inner workings of this process. And, you know, you know that I was a prosecutor at one point in my life, and I, I understand what that feels like to to have that sense of responsibility that you're, you know, supposed yeah. to be protecting yeah. your community and you have this, this sort of thing. The problem is it tends to be younger, more experienced lawyers that fill that role. I certainly was. It was the very first job I had as a lawyer. And it's just so easy to say, hey, I know what to do. Let's throw all the bad guys in prison. That's it. Boom. Done. Period. Hey, better society. Right. And and that's that sort of mentality appeals very easily to people that don't have a whole lot of experience with the system or if they have a bad experience with the system where they've been involved as a witness or a victim of a crime or something like that. Right. Okay. but the thing we have to remember is that this is the United States of America. And sometimes people forget that we're supposed to be the most, the most fair legal system that exists. I mean, it's got its flaws, but it's certainly better than the way they do things in Saudi Arabia or in Iran. Right. Um, theoretically, but you know, <laughs> this, whole, this whole thing where it's just so easy to point to incidents that have happened and say, 
hey, uh, I'm going to get a lot of votes by tapping into people's frustration that crime continues to happen without ever addressing why crime happens. Because this goes back to hundreds of years of philosophical thought and theory as it relates to how to address wrongful conduct in society. And it's really kind of ironic because even as recently as, I don't know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, there was a big push to try and make the correction system more correctional than it is and more rehabilitational than it is purely punitive. And that movement lasted for eh, 30, 40 years. And then it kind of turned political again um, into the, uh, the easy answer for those that. Well, it was kind of an illusion too. I, it was an illusion. It was probably it, a bit. A bit it was the same. It was, yeah. the, it was the same. It was the same sort of, um, uh, I'm, I don't know, want to use the term liberal attitude uh, that um, most Americans had towards Native Americans <laughs> when they opened up all these schools to, you know, right. them Christianity and all this stuff. And in, in retrospect, and, it was patronizing. Yeah. And the whole point when they did that was was not to be punitive or rip children's away from their family, uh, but was to help them. Yeah, you know, it was a very pro- supposedly progressive thing. Parental. You know? <laughs> and so, and and so, the same can be said a, a lot about the prison system, or the you know the idea that prison was going to be a quote correctional. Um, and I rolled my R's there. <laughs> a correctional um, situation. You know, I mean, the Green Bay Correctional uh, um, Institution in Wisconsin uh, used to be called the Reformatory. It was a reformatory. In fact, those words are still emblazoned in stone on the front door. I know. I always <laughs> feel weird going in that place. That That is what I think the second oldest penal institution, correctional institution we have. Uh, the one in what? Uh, Dodge. Wapan, uh, Wapan yes. Yeah. Wapan itself, not um, Dodge Correctional yeah. Institution, but Wapan. Yeah. They only have like 40 or 50 inmates at the at Wapan, in Wapan proper. Because uh, that's the one that was built in the 18, what, 70s or something. 40 like. or 50? No. It's not. It's a smaller amount. It's a, it's a an old decrepit place generally. No, but they have way more than that. Do they really? Cause I, I very rarely have a client. They, they have way more than that. They have, um, added a lot, you know, um, they, but anyway, <laughs> to, get back, to get back to your point about, um, candidate Michaels, the, it's obviously, I mean, it's a calculated political, um, ploy, I guess, uh, to talk about parole, but you and I both know parole is almost meaningless in Wisconsin, right? Because we have, because the only people it applies to are those convicted of crimes before 1999. Okay. Right. So it's a very small sliver of the prison population. Right, right. So, and it's funny. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying. I mean, it's just like you know, it's not meaningful. 
But he's making the point that, like, I want to increase the prison population, you know, a la Tommy Thompson. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know. Uh, well, let me just tell you a little bit more about this press release because there's there's some interesting detail here. Um, well, this is an AP News report, I should say. Michaels has made the parole process and overall concerns about crime and public safety a cornerstone of his campaign against Democrat Governor uh, Tony Evers. Michaels earlier called on Evers to halt all paroles in the state. Remember when that happened? On Monday, Michaels highlighted what he said are problems with the current parole process by discussing the case of Floyd Marlowe, a convicted murderer who was arrested last week after being paroled in January. He had served 22 years of a 40-year sentence for killing a Milwaukee man in 1999 before he was paroled. We need to have a shift in the cultural thinking of the parole commission, Michaels said during a news conference at the West Bend Sheriff's Department. Michaels added he would not stop the process of parole. Um. But he has a goal of increasing the prison population, apparently. So, um, you know, just it, this is an opportunistic thing where he's, you know, things will happen. That's the thing that we tend to, I guess, forget or not be able to deal with as a society is that no matter what we do to create laws with some sort of noble goal in mind, there's always going to be things that happen. Right. We're a huge country. I mean, Wisconsin itself is a, he has a huge population of people that do things. And some of those things are going to not be good. It's just always going to be that way. You can never eliminate all of it. So if you can cherry pick these instances of people that for whatever reason, you know, have um, reoffended or committed another crime or committed a bad crime and then had too light of a sentence in some people's opinions. I mean, it doesn't give an accurate view and it doesn't contribute to actual problem solving using actuarial well, data or, or all well, the things that we say we know. They're not going to use data. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> data schmata. What, 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 I don't even know what you're thinking about. All right. So I know we're coming up on a break, but let's, uh, we'll pick this up and we'll analyze, you know, maybe some uh, data. <laughs> how people understand and view the justice system because okay. it's just not reality. Sounds good to me. All right, we'll be right back. And we are back. More legal defense. <laughs> defense. You say that with passion. Defense, like the when you go to a football game and they have somebody D- holds up the big letter D and then somebody else has a picture of a fence. Oh, it's funny. I went to a Bills game when I was a kid, and this is back when the – you know now how there's that giant screen that's in high definition and you can go to a Packers game and at least when I go, I spend half my time watching the big monitor in the sky, <laughs> you know, and the other time trying to figure out what's going on in the field. Well, back in the 80s, you know, early 80s, they had one of those, I don't know, it wasn't very big and it was it was more like a, uh, you know, like the signs that they, somebody had to program, like the the word that went in there and it would kind of scan across in lights, you know. Okay. <laughs> and I remember going to a game and whoever, you know, set up the system misspelled the word defense. So it <laughs> said it was spelled D-F-F. Uh, NSE. So everybody's going defense. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have been at that game. <laughs> that, would that was back when the Bills were bad, which is most of the history of the Buffalo Bills. I mean, I, there is no other team that has lost four Super Bowls in a row. 
that I know of. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. But, um, you know, the, actually, just we'll get back to the law in a minute. But <laughs> I was on a Zoom call <laughs> this week and I was wearing a Packers jersey. Um, not a jersey, excuse me, uh, a hoodie. And and so some of the people I was on the call with were from out of state, and one guy was from Chicago. And uh, and he he said, "Huh, oh, I see you're still flying your colors, uh, just pretending like everything's okay." <laughs> <laughs> After our loss last week, right, right. I mean, this, I, this is I had to laugh and explain to him that cheddar runs deep in my veins and that. Uh, that's just the way it's going to be. I don't know if I want to say this out loud on the air, but you know, I mean, our show's airing on Saturday, which means tomorrow, if you're listening to this, the Packers are playing the Buffalo Bills. You, you know, I'm a Buffalo Bills. Are you conflicted? Uh, well, a little bit. So what we're doing right. is my wife's wearing the Packers stuff. I'm going to wear the Bills stuff. And either way, we're, we'll be happy, I guess. Okay. I All right. But, well, just tell the listeners, no, you're from Buffalo. Yes. I thought everybody. Born and bred. Yes. All right. Well, I was born in California, but I grew up in Buffalo. You're right. Well, okay. <laughs> I don't have to slice and dice it that much. But anyway, right. um, <laughs> the getting back to how people view the criminal justice, well, excuse me, the criminal punishment system that we now have, uh, it's all still TV-based, I think. You know, even before TV existed, it was kind of TV-based. It was kind of media-based and um, sensationalized. And there's always, always a sensational case. Yeah, Lizzie Borden, the ex-murderer. There just is. There just is. And and so when people want to construct an entire system on an anecdotal sensational case, that's that's what we got to get away from. Mm-hmm. That's the, and I don't know how to convince people more to, to get away from that. It's than hard. It's what really you and I hard do every to, day, but it's hard to accept that. And I think the reason why you and I think about it differently is this is our job 24 seven. You know, um, we, we know how, at least in our minds and there may be some slight differences, but we tend to be on the same page about how, you know, in that ideal society, which we'll never achieve, things might work, you know, and then we can really call it a criminal justice system instead of just a purely criminal punishment system. But, you know, when, when laws are made based on a particular incident, you know, I've said this many times when, when there's a law that has a name associated with it, you know, like the baby Luke law or the land or Marcy's law, it's probably a bad law because it's based on an incident. It's based on a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And it's a reaction to, you know, the underlying bedrock of our entire system really should not depend upon, um, you know, public outrage over a particular case. I mean, because that, that way it'll just never, it'll never be perfect. And I'm sure it so never will be perfect. But on, on that note, I will tell you that um, there's a lot you can criticize about the United States history, the founding, the founders, but, you know, being slaveholders or whatever, but 
I'll tell you on the note you just said, the fact that they constructed a system that was not based on sensationalism, it was based on constructing or putting into force rules, the fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth amendments, for example, uh, as, you know, difficult as it was to interpret them, uh, to create that fair system. And so in world history, nothing like it ever existed. Mm-hmm. And well, the, the temptation is to make it so it's, you know, a, a lot of governments are based on people's lives are ruined based on bad luck, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or even God forbid, you know, a lot of justice, quote unquote, justice systems throughout the world are based on political or, you know, other affiliations based on the religion that one practices or whatever, you know, people end up jailed right. in other countries simply right. because of what they believe in and what they right. say. Well, I'll tell you, you know, just to remind <laughs> listeners, the, the amendments, and it's interesting that there were, there were amendments because of the conflict at the constitutional convention that they weren't part of the original constitution, but there are now through amending, but in a way, I'm kind of glad there are amendments because they're singled out. Well, and kept, they're easily they kept or separation of powers part of it, you know, as the main document. And then, yeah. So, you know, like you, you got to have a warrant to search your place. You got to say what you're looking for. You can't just like uh, rummage through people's houses. Uh, people have a right not to testify against themselves. You can't try somebody twice. You have a right to confrontation. You have a right to counsel. You have a right to a speed trial. You have a right to not get an excessive, um, harsh uh, penalty. You know, and those are amazing in the view of world history. Amazing. Right. Now, they're manipulated like crazy by courts' interpretations. But still, that initial thing to have done that in the first place was, you know, I think a huge elevation in human history. I agree. And that's one thing I love about my job so much is that we get to be patriots in what we do. And that is true patriotism, in my view, and yours, and I think a lot of people. But a lot of people... Other people do not understand that. Mm-hmm. They cherry pick. Yeah. And if it's you very- cherry pick, you're always, you can have any result you want. <laughs> you know, it's very easy to be scared. It's very easy to, to tap into fear. It's very easy to be unhappy with the world around you. And I, you know, I think we're all familiar with the, <laughs> I know I've mentioned this to you before, just my surprise at, People in my family, I won't name names, but other people that I've come across in life where at one point they were like a hippy-dippy liberal, um, and then they turn into like a, you know, a super harsh <laughs> critic of everything and just get grumpy all over the place. I've, I've ah. a couple relatives in my family that that's exactly what happened to. I remember the 70s and things were, you know, 
<clears throat> equal rights, peace and joy, peace and love, whatever, you know, like let, let's have a progressive world and let's go down this path of bettering things. Now it's like turns into bitterness and frustration. Um, I don't know. Sounds but like I, more of a psychological problem than anything else. But I think so. Or aging, I guess. I don't know. Aging. Um, I, you and I are both getting there. So, I mean, I'm hoping that I keep my perspective as things go on. <clears throat> hey, oh, we're going to come up on a break, but I do want to introduce another topic and we'll come back to it right after these commercial messages. But I was at a uh, dinner meeting earlier this week with some of my old friends that do a lot of drunk driving defense and, I won't name his name, but somebody that you know and I know that I haven't uh, talked to in years for various reasons um, has this really creative argument involving the Third Amendment. So when we come oh. back, I'll give you a second, listeners, to <clears throat> maybe look up you know, what the Third Amendment because nobody ever talks about the Third Amendment. I, I know what it is. You know what it is, but you know maybe look it up on uh, Hey Google or something like that, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. Hopefully you had a chance to look up what the third amendment is that one of those amendments we never talk about because it seems so obscure. But John Birdsall, what's the third amendment? Uh, Congress shall make no law allowing Kirk Bear to um, be disrespectful to his business partner. Now, um, I think I know I'm not it has to do with no covering of troops. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> Citizens shall not, there shall be no law compelling the quartering of government officials. And you'd think, well, why why was that so important? Well, back in the pre-revolutionary colonial era, given the fact that we were a colony and not a full-fledged right-bearing part of England, one of the things that in order to impose more or less martial law, was that a property owner, especially specifically a homeowner, was subject to the Redcoats coming in and saying, hey, this looks like a good place to live. I'm going <laughs> to live here now. Uh, beat it, you know? Well, and you know, it's, back, it's, back then, back then, you know, there was no, you, you were kind of like roaming the land. Right. There was very few structures. There wasn't hotels or anything. Well, there were three things that were important back then. Your house your sheep and or cows and goats and your musket. That's why, you know, you got all those amendments right in the beginning and your religion. Right. So anyway, uh, that it never gets litigated because it seems so esoteric. Right. I mean, what does that even mean? We don't have this issue of red coats <laughs> coming in and saying, Hey, attorney O'Bear, uh, how many bedrooms are in your house? Uh, Cause we've got like a bunch of troops here that want to live here and we're going to evict you because <laughs> we want to take it over. <clears throat> but much like, you know, we've talked about this a lot on the show. Where did the Supreme court find if they ever, well, they did at one time, maybe they unfound it now, but where was that right to privacy? Where was it? It was somewhere um, in the combination of reading, uh, different provisions and case law interpretations of different amendments and statutory provisions and the constitution and everything else. Right. It came up with, yes, there is this right. It doesn't say so in the constitution, but it's there. So the idea is that kind of implied, not, not just implied. I mean, implied doesn't give it enough uh, respect. It's something that you, you can't, 
ignore or say is not part, not something that is needs to be explicit because, you know, after all inalienable rights, you know, is something that's been part of our history as well. Where right. are they? Right. Where are they? You know, you don't know. Um, they're just inalienable. Right. Um, but self-determination, privacy, those kinds of things are embodied in the fourth amendment, the fifth amendment, the sixth amendment, all these things. So what does, what does no quartering of troops really mean? Well, there's this theory from a friend of ours <laughs> that what it really means is that a, a citizen may not be compelled to be in service of the government against their will. Okay. Uh, financially or otherwise. So, Think about this in the context of drunk driving cases where, and I've seen this happen a few times, more than a few times, where the police arrest somebody, they take them to a hospital. Now, hospitals, by and large, are private entities, right? That's part of our capitalism. This isn't a government hospital. We don't have socialized medicine, so this is a private business. And the people that work for this private business get paid by the private business, and so they're employees of that business, not the police, so when they haul somebody in, there is this contra- – well, it's this order that, by the way, we don't normally see in the discovery process. It's just a standardized form that they hand to um, the phlebotomist or med tech or whoever's there ready to take the blood. And it's basically an order that they must take this person's blood. It, whether And then whether there is a medical treatment concern – and here's the thing. When that happens – if you think about this, John, somebody is being taken to a medical facility, which exists for the purpose of providing medical treatment, okay. which, which follows, you know, to preserve or maintain life and respect a person's health care decisions and so forth. And oftentimes when someone is being transported to the hospital to have a blood draw done, they have refused to consent to that blood draw. Or even if they have consented to it, they still use this form that tells the phlebotomist, you're being ordered to conduct this medical procedure on a person for non-medical purposes. In other words, we are co-opting your services as the government against your will, possibly against your Hippocratic oath, possibly against your own ethics. Okay. So fascinating discussion about all this. Now I'm sure the issue that pops into your head as, as popped into the heads of several other lawyers that were listening to this is okay, that's fine. But where does the remedy lie and who can actually say there's a constitutional issue here? It doesn't seem like it's the guy who's having his blood drawn. It seems like the, the person who's drawing the blood, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's a little complicated, but I'm always fascinated by, you know, that, well, that, I like, that, I, that, like that, I like creative thinking. I do. Yeah. That's creative thinking is the essence of what we do. So, um, speaking of creative thinking, um, let's talk about Darrell mm-hmm. or Daryl. Either one. I think it's fine. Either one. Okay. I, I, I don't want to. I think Darrell is what he prefers. Okay. Although it's hard to say. He wouldn't really. Re- you know, a lot of the trial had to do with him being kind of uh, sheepish about, you know, what his actual name was. Because he had this argument that it what that he wasn't on trial. Somebody else. Sovereign was. citizen. Yeah. Somebody else was. You know, and that, that's not him. <laughs> um, somebody with a different name. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you and I have talked about this. And I think it's interesting especially 
it might be academic, but he had a legitimate defense against first degree intentional homicide. He absolutely did. Very legitimate defense. And that is that you cannot be reckless, which he was also charged with, recklessly endangering safety. Um, You can't be reckless and intentional at the same time. And if he had proper counsel rather than his meandering, crazy sort of, uh, I don't know, angry outbursts and whatnot, um, he actually had a legitimate chance to reduce those from first degree intentional to first degree reckless, which might be accurate because a lot of hurt was done and people died and yeah, you know, terrible. probably would have got an effectual, you know, an effective life sentence anyways. But as a legal matter, it seems like that was a very winnable case. Right. I mean, on those charges, he would have been convicted of a, of a lot of things that would have given him a lot of prison time and it would not have been an injustice if that occurred. But yeah, he gets charged with, Intentional homicide, and this is something that I think, you know, you kind of have to go back to criminal law 101 to understand that an intentional homicide is the the ultimate crime, right? It's, there is nothing worse. Well, I guess there's some sexual assaults that are pretty close. I mean, as far as yeah. maximum penalties and such, but, um, you know, we don't have the death penalty in Wisconsin. Uh, but so it's like life in prison and probably without parole in those types of situations. But in order for it to stick, so to speak, the the those that type of homicide is reserved for one who remember this from law school malice of forethought. Yep. Um, okay. And when one is given an opportunity to retreat from commission of the crime, they go they plunge ahead. Okay. So the facts of this case don't fit what you no. typically think of as a first degree intentional homicide. That's where You know, let's say I have a beef against somebody and I plan where I'm going to kill the person, how I'm going to do it. I I go to the, you know, hardware store and I buy the rope that I'm going to tie him up with and the, and all the other stuff. And there's all this evidence of me having not just an emotional or immediate sort of visceral response to what's going on around me or based on my mental state or my impairment by drugs or alcohol or my whatever things that people respond to. This is like in, in the ability to uh, form a rational thought, the thought is to kill, you know, that's what first degree intention. Of course, as you know, that intention can be formed in a second, second, (laughs) just before the crime. But, but that aside, um, it seems like a plausible argument, you know, of a guy who just had a thing with his girlfriend and he was like upset and he's driving and he suddenly runs into this parade and doesn't know what's going on. And it's all very confusing. And then he just like just plows ahead because he doesn't know where else to go. I don't know. That could be reckless. And that very well even sounds very reckless. That could even be second degree reckless, right? And it certainly it certainly could have also been NGI, which is not not guilty by reason of insanity. I think he was trying to pepper the record with evidence of that. Well, you know, he had an opportunity to bring that, 
Right. All right. We got to take a break. So we will be right back. We are back with more legal defense. Or should I say defense? No. (laughs) Defense. I I already used that one. All right. Um, Anyway. uh, I know what I want you to talk about, if I can interject here. Yep. There there was a big uh, event in the trial, the Darrell Brooks trial that happened earlier in the week. And I... I know about it. I read about it, but I don't know if there's been any resolution as to the details of what happened. But there was a oh my <laughs> a leaked yes. uh, supposed I, using some form of social media. I'm not sure what, but it was right supposed, supposedly from a juror who was on the case, and this juror said all this stuff about how you know, he or she completely understands the defense and that I think it was a woman that portrayed to be a woman. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, uh, she was like, this guy is really making a lot of sense. I feel like the judge isn't being fair. And it's like, if the book Brooks could have written something to get out to the world, that it would have been this. And it just makes yeah. me wonder if now, you know, he's in custody. I don't know that he has access to anything, but I'm sure he talks to, people but it seemed awfully um staged i don't know totally calculated you know when i first saw it it just it just felt it just felt fake Mm -hmm. you know and um if it if it hadn't been if it was actually one of the jurors it would have been like so explosive it was explosive anyways because you know we didn't know but mm-hmm. well, um, what did the judge? I don't know. Did the judge deal with that issue at all? Judge, judge dealt with it by doing the judge thing that judges always do, which is to say, "Have any of you?" Uh, she went one by one, but you know, have have you, you know, had any contact with the outside world about this, or have you made any statements? You know, and no, 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 no. Okay. Of course. You know, and that's a safe way from her perspective to deal with it. Right. No. Um, And I mean, the words sounded like they were coming right out of his mouth. I mean, honestly, you know. (laughs) So what's going to be interesting, I think, for you and I, for sure, and for the world, probably, is what does this appeal look like? Mm. You know, we know know he's going to get life without parole. Right. That's. Just um, deals. But what's the appeal? Is it the judge's bias? Is it, uh, well, he can't say ineffective assistance of counsel. Because <laughs> he didn't have counsel. <laughs> so, uh, because he made the terrible decision to go it alone. You know, I've said this before. I may have commented to you, John, but I have seen that happen and there's a there is a case from I don't know thirty years ago where somebody insisted that they should represent themselves, and the judge said, "I don't think you can, and I'm going to make a make you have a lawyer." And his conviction was reversed, and that mm-hmm. I think is one of those decisions that gets passed around from the jailhouse lawyers, like because I've seen it happen where someone's like, "I'm well, going to represent." One of the decisions that he used to insist on his self-representation. Right. And he's kind of hoping that in spite of his best arguments, the judge forces him to have some lawyer, which fits within the facts of that case. But, 
you know, too bad for him. The judge is like, well, you seem like you can represent yourself, so I'm going to let you. <laughs> well, he's and not. Then, he, yeah, well, he's not incompetent. Right. Obviously and not. In, fact, in, way, in fact, there was many times when he wasn't having a ranting thing or ripping off his shirt or whatever. He was you know, like the silly things he was doing. There was many times when he was very coherent mm-hmm. and on point and made some really good points about intentional versus reckless. Oh, yeah. He, he brought you know. out a lot of points about how he, the person, whoever it was, maybe it was him. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> was honking yeah. the honking the horn. That's you heard a that, very right? good point. Yeah. That's an excellent point. And the DA tried to spin that and say, well, if you, uh, were honking, um, then you knew there was people there. Mm-hmm. And you kept going and you didn't stop. Right. But it's it seems like it's enough that could take it down from that first degree intention. It it seems, it seems, you know, it if he would have had some evidence about his, you know, uh, I don't know, not mental state necessarily, but the uh, about you know the 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 mixed up yeah. state of his mind at the time well, of passion, fight with his right? girlfriend. That's, that's what we call it, a crime of passion. He could have he could have he could have argued with a straight face, not only not first degree intentional, but he could have argued second degree reckless, which does not involve utter disregard for human life, you know? And, and he could have even argued against that to say, I wasn't even aware because I was like in such a crazed state. Right. That might've been a hard sell, but it would have been, that would have been the argument. And you and I both know from all the homicide cases that we've had, how, how, you know, the lesser included offenses work that, that are, that kick in in virtually every case where there's, where it's not a vehicular homicide or not a lend bias homicide, but like a, you know, one of these cases where somebody did something mm-hmm. like this or with a gun or a knife or a car and it results in, um, you know, this type of thing that that's part of the process that the jury has to consider all of those different possibilities. Like it's mandatory, you know? So yeah, he probably could have benefited from, an attorney representing him. And I don't know the story about how that didn't happen. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with him, but, um, well, <laughs> I don't know if we're ever going to know the story. Probably not. Cause it probably involves him talking to people in the jail, um, and saying how bad public defenders are and all that. Um, and the truth is, is that as much as you can criticize the public defender system in Wisconsin, there's a lot of great lawyers in that. We do. A lot of heroes. Especially especially the ones handling homicides. They're pretty damn good. You yeah. know? Um, even if they're overloaded and just like... Not their fault. Workload. No, not... No, no. It's the legislature's fault. But um, they would recognize the issues and they would raise them. And, uh, and that's, that's what we do. You know, Um, you know, we we you and I, we don't care about who's, you know, pushing up against us. We don't care about all the publicity that's against our client or whatever. We we just go, 
you know? And if we have a legal defense, if we, if you and I had represented Daryl Brooks, we would have raised all this. Right. And we now, would care about the entire storm it created. I, I will be honest. Occasionally there comes a case where, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question such as, you know, would I, would I be able to take this case? And I, I try to pride myself on saying I would take any case anywhere, anytime, no matter what the allegations are. This, this, when this happened, I thought to myself, I, I would, I, I'd be a little squeamish, you know, just because of all. So, the- I wouldn't be squeamish at all on this case. Yeah. The only time I asked that question and find myself squeamish would be with, and I'm not religious at all, but would be with some of these um, uh, pedophile priests. Mm-hmm. Um, and not because of the individual acts, but because this organization <laughs> that basically had, had an organized crime ring of pedophiles. Mm-hmm. And that's what just like, oh, just I, I don't know what I would do. I'm, I'm not saying I would never represent yeah, I, them. I've obviously had cases that I've been uncomfortable with just because of what the allegations are or, you know, just how, how much pain and suffering and loss has been created by this unfortunate situation. But, you know, I'm always able to look at it as clinically as possible and say, look, this person needs a defense. This is what our country is all about. This is what our system is all about. And frankly, judges, you know, really do appreciate when lawyers will have the guts to take on a tough case because the reality is convictions don't happen without defense lawyers. It's impossible. There wouldn't be any such. There'd be nothing. There'd be no system whatsoever whether right. it's there or not. Right just wouldn't have it. Um, it's necessary. So that is, that is so basic. Oh, geez. Yeah. You just open up a door that we can walk <laughs> through for hours. Yeah. And I do that before. right as the show is finishing up. <laughs> We're almost out of time. Yeah. So we do have to go. Um, but hopefully uh, you can tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend, everyone. Have a great one.